The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. I'm Jim Fleming. The scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Hello, friends. Uh, just by way of reminder, we're trying as much as we can to have people read the scriptures from home. Just to remind us uh, that we are still in community with people who aren't here with us. There are actually more people out there uh, joining us than there are in here, which uh, compels me to again urge you uh, to pray uh, for those who are most affected by the impact of COVID and also to personally reach out to those that you miss or that you suspect might miss seeing you. Uh, that's one of the really important ways to stay connected is just to continue to keep that personal contact uh, in ways that you can with those that you know and those that you love. I actually had two different conversations this morning with people who are back for the first time in a year. It's been that long for a lot of people, you guys, and there's still folks who uh, just aren't ready. And so this is where the body of Christ can come through in loving and serving and ministering to and seeing one another. So urge you to, to do that if somebody comes to mind. So, uh, so we are in uh, the center of our series, or the middle point of our series, uh, called Jesus studies in Mark's gospel, and today we're talking about Jesus as our wealth, and uh, I'd like to start with uh, recognition of three well-known accounts in the Bible of people that had it all, and yet were still searching uh, for meaning in their lives. The first is from the Old Testament. He's the writer of Ecclesiastes. Uh, It's a man who has great power, great wealth, Uh, A lot of women uh, in his life and uh, a lot of things. And there's a certain point where he writes, those who love money will not be satisfied with money. 
And that is a symbolic statement of of anything that we latch our hearts onto other than Christ to give us our sense of wealth, our sense of meaning, our sense of value. The writer of Ecclesiastes says essentially everything but loving God, fearing God, and keeping his commandments is like vapor. It's like trying to hold on to a handful of smoke. Uh, You just can't do it. It's going to seep through your fingers. You're not going to be able to keep grasp of it. The second person is a man named Nicodemus. This is the person whose ears were the first uh, ears ever uh, to hear the words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, which was a power group. In Israel, he was a man of great virtue, uh, a man who studied his Bible for many, many years. He had great wealth, and he comes to Jesus at night, searching for answers that he still has not found. And then the third person is the person we are presented with today, uh, famously known as the rich young ruler. He's written about in several of the Gospels, Mark's Gospel being one of them. Uh, He was like the Elon Musk or the Kim Kardashian of uh, first century Judaism. He was somewhere between, in all likelihood, the ages of 20 and 40. Uh, He had impeccable moral virtue, as we read about in this text. All your commands, Lord, I've kept uh, since I was a child. And it says that he had great possessions. And Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. Reminds me of Tom Brady in his uh, 2005 interview with 60 Minutes. Steve Croft was the interviewer, and at this point in time, uh, Tom Brady, also known by many as the GOAT, as the greatest of all time. Hard to debate that in my opinion, although I imagine others might have different opinions. He was 27 years old. He'd already achieved three Super Bowl rings. He's far surpassed that now. At the time, that was the most Super Bowl rings that any quarterback had ever uh, gotten. He was married to the world's top supermodel, who he's still married to, Giselle. At the time, remember age 27, he and his wife uh, earned uh, more than $85 million a year combined. Steve Croft asked him this question in that 60 Minutes interview. What have you learned about yourself? And here was his answer. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I reached my goal, my dream, my life. It's got to be more than this. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? I wish I knew. So, writer of Ecclesiastes, Nicodemus, rich young ruler, Tom Brady, the list is a lot longer than that. Three questions around this dynamic. How can you have it all and still not feel like you have it all? How can this be? That's the first question. What does this mean? And where is this headed? So, So the first question, how can this be? How is it possible to have everything and feel like you're lacking? The answer is presented for us 
clearly and directly in the first chapter of Romans, where it says that we as human beings are prone to substitute created things for our creator, turn them into uh, a counterfeit Lord, a counterfeit Savior. We We want something other than Jesus to master us, to be our Lord, to give our lives to, and something other than Jesus to save us, to rescue us, to give our lives meaning, to help fill the empty void. Now, it's tricky, this whole thought of replacing the Creator with created things, because when God created the heavens and the earth, we know from Genesis, He looked back on every single thing that He created and He said, It is all very good. And, and so, what makes it tricky is that these aren't bad things that we're substituting for God. These are actually good things that we are turning into our ultimate thing. For the rich young ruler, it was his money and possessions. For others, it could be career, it could be uh, our body type, our fitness, it could be romance, it could be having happy kids and a happy family life, it could be status, it could be recognition, it could be any number of things that we seek our ultimate meaning from. And again, these are all good things, but, but, but what Jesus is about here and what he's after with the rich young ruler is to persuade him that it's always going to distort your life when you take good things and you turn them into your ultimate thing. When you, when you, when you turn them into number one in the hierarchy of your loves and affections and somewhere down the list is, is God, it's going to distort everything. And it's going to distort you. And, and here's the reason why. The only thing, the only two things that are bigger than the universe are the human soul and God who alone can fill the space of the human soul. Did you know that you are bigger than the galaxies? As far as God is concerned, you are the crown of creation as a human being made in his image. And the crown of creation means that you, you are a king or a queen over the universe. That's what you are meant to be. You are meant to rule it, to subdue it, to cultivate it, to master all of creation. And so because of that, there's nothing in all of God's creation that will be able to occupy your soul. It's like having a starving person in front of you. And that starving person, in order to be properly nourished, needs an enormous feast. But that starving person says, I will settle for a morsel. The morsel won't do it any more than things like money, things like career and recognition and romance and having happy kids. These are morsels. What your soul wants and needs is something much, much bigger than that. So that's how this can be. That's how Tom Brady can say, is there more? St. Augustine prayed, you you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Uh, Or there's the Norwegian playwright, Henrik Ibsen, who calls it the life lie. He says, if you take the life lie away from an average man, you take away his happiness. Jesus unpacked this in what we know as the parable of the rich fool. There's a rich man 
who has a lot of stuff. He's got so much stuff that his house can't fit it anymore. And so instead of giving it away, instead of downsizing, instead of reading a book on minimalism, he builds a barn, an extra barn to store all of his excess stuff. And then it says that he speaks to his own soul. He preaches a sermon to his own soul. And the, and the sermon goes like, this, goes like this. You have plenty of wealth, plenty of things, lots of stuff. You're okay. And then Jesus says, you're a fool. Because this very night, your life, your soul will be required of you. What do we preach to our souls? What is it on the other end of this sentence? Soul, you will be okay if. What's on the other side of the if? If Jesus isn't what is on the other side of the if, you have a life lie. And that is your life lie. Whatever is on the other side of that if. Here's some other questions we could ask. What if I lost it would wreck me? What if I lost it or couldn't have it would tempt me to hate myself or to hate my life? What consumes, here's another question, what consumes the greatest portion of my time, of my money, of my energy, of my mind share? What is my sermon? What do I monitor every day? Maybe it's my net worth. Maybe it's my likes and follows. Maybe it's my perception of what the people around me think about me. What am I monitoring all the time? My social rank, my body weight. Again, these are all good things. They're fine things. They're just bad, ultimate things. They're destructive, ultimate things. But put in the right order, they are fine. And many of them so very good. But when we turn created things into our ultimate thing, the effect goes something like this. It's like, it's like taking this chalice and dipping it into the ocean because we are so thirsty and guzzling down salt water and then dipping it in the ocean and guzzling the salt water again, doing it three or four times and realizing that after we have taken in so much salt water, we realize we're more thirsty now than we were before we started drinking. That's how idolatry works. C.S. Lewis famously said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made for another world. So back to the rich ruler here. Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. What is it that he lacks? He lacks lack. He lacks a feeling that he needs anything other than what he has accumulated and achieved for himself by himself. He lacks 
dependence. So Jesus says to him, I want you to manufacture for yourself a scenario in which you lack what you think you need most to give your life meaning. So I want you to take your money and I want you to get rid of all of it. I want you to give it to the poor and then I want you to follow me. And it says the man walks away sad. Money is not the issue. You can actually have money and not love money. It's possible. It's hard, but it's possible. How do we know this from the Bible? Job, it says he was the wealthiest person in the world and the most righteous person in the world at the same time. Abraham, the father of the faithful, also had great wealth. Jesus talks about Solomon in the Sermon on the Mount. Solomon and all of his splendor, all of his wealth, all of his riches, And the reason why God gave him those riches was when God said, ask me for anything, he didn't ask for riches. He asked for wisdom. And he said, I'm going to give you wisdom, but I'm also going to give you more than this. It says in the Bible that the new heaven and the new earth, which is the, the destiny of every person who believes in Jesus Christ, the streets are going to be paved with gold. It's going to be the most solid Uh, the most solid bricks under your feet that that, that you've ever had. It's going to be opulent. You're destined for wealth. And so wealth is not the problem. Idolatry is the problem. A distorted hierarchy of loves, that's the issue that Jesus is uh, is after here. And so this man, he has this relationship with money, this relationship with wealth, Where he thinks that he would be lost without it, which means he's actually lost with it. He thinks that he can't live without it, which actually means he can't live with it anymore. He thinks that he has money, but his money has him. It's got him around the neck. He doesn't own it. It owns him. It's his life lie. And Jesus says in verse 26... For everyone to hear, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are freaking out. And by the way, the disciples are blue-collar workers. And they're freaking out about what Jesus says about rich people. And they say, who who can enter the kingdom of heaven then, Lord? It's impossible. Because even though, maybe they were thinking, even though we don't have money, we, we kind of love it. We wish we had more. It's, it's our goal. Maybe they were, you know, teetering on wealth being their life lie. And Jesus has this, you know, starts talking about camels. Then he says to his disciples, with man this is impossible but all things are possible with God. This is Jesus using something called hyperbole. Hyperbole is when you overstate something in order to make a point. Example, Bruno Mars to his beloved, I would jump in front of a train for you. No, you wouldn't. Bruno Mars isn't going to jump in front of a train for anyone. 
But he's, he's trying to make a statement. I love you so much that, that, that just basic, simple words won't do. I would jump in front of a train for you. That's what I would do. No, you wouldn't. Any more than a camel has ever passed through the eye of a needle. It's never happened. Jesus is trying to make a point here. All things are possible with God. Interestingly, the camel was known at that time in this culture as the largest animal on earth. It's tall, strong. But the mustard seed was known as the smallest seed on earth. All it takes is a little bit of tiny, minuscule faith in a very, very big God. And that's how you get through the eye of that needle, even if you're rich. Jesus is not after the man's money. He's after the man's heart, and he's after the man's happiness. You can have both wealth and happiness, but you can't love both. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach. It's impossible to love both. A love for one rules out love for either the other. And that's why the rich ruler walked away. How can this be? That's how it can be. But what does this all mean? It means you have to let go of whatever that life lie is that potentially has you around the neck or that does have you around the neck. Jonah, from the belly of a fish, finally came to his senses. His life lie was this. If I, if I lose my grudge against those awful people who have done such political damage to me and my people, the Ninevites, if I let go of my hatred for them, what else do I have? if I don't have my political rage. And then he's in the belly of a fish. Because what God wants to do is to get Jonah to love the people that he hates the most. And Jonah's running the other way, and so God arranges for Jonah to get swallowed up by a big fish, and it's in the belly of the fish that he finally realizes, ah, just had a thought. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Jonah's story isn't over there. The complexity of his story isn't over there. But that's when he has his awakening. I've got a life lie. Anything that causes me to run in the opposite direction from God so that I can hold on to it, whether it's a grudge or whether it's anything else, it's a life lie. It will wreck you. So Jesus says, you've got to let it all go, Jonah. You've got to let it all go, rich ruler. Your stuff, sell it. Give it away. Follow me. Why keep your emotional umbilical cord plugged in to things that will take your life instead of giving you life? Why? Makes no sense. There's no logic to it. And then he applies what we could call the logic of the gospel. If you give me everything, you'll get everything back. Not in the way that you expect it, but you'll get everything back and, and, and then some and in abundance. Give it all to me, it's as if Jesus is saying. All of your money, all your time, all your religion, all of your politics, all your relationships, all of your recognition, all of your career, every crutch that you've ever leaned on or that you're tempted to lean on now, give it all to me. And what it means, what that mean, it could mean is let it all go and never have a relationship with it again. 
Or what it could mean is you just open your hands and you hold it with open hands, surrendering to Jesus to do whatever he wishes to do with it, whatever it is. It is only your life lie when you're clinging to it. It is no longer a life lie when you're holding it with open hands. Leave it entirely to me, Jesus might say, to decide what your life will look like, how much power, how much influence you will have, what people think of you, your dreams for your marriage and your family, what your net worth will be. Leave that all up to me. I've got a better plan for you. I love you more than you love yourself. I know it's hard to believe. I love you more than you love yourself. I know better for you what's good for you. So just do this. Bonhoeffer, in The Cost of Discipleship, said when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And Jesus says you've got to die in order to really live. Only those, Jesus said, who lose their lives for my sake, which is doing this, will find their lives. In the realm of generosity, what does this mean? It depends on who you are. It depends on what your situation is. If you're a student, it, 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 it means maybe starting by giving 10% of your babysitting money away. Do what the writer of Ecclesiastes also said, to remember your creator in the days of your youth. Start young. Every little act of faithfulness, every little habit of faithfulness that you start at a young age will set you up for big acts of faithfulness when you get older. And the reverse works too. Every little act of unfaithfulness when you're young is going to make it harder and harder and harder for you to live faithfully when you're older. That's the truth about life. Or if you're C.S. Lewis and you experience a windfall because people gobble up your books by the millions, you say, you know what? 10% isn't enough anymore. I'm going to keep 10% and I'm going to give away 90%. Rick Warren did the same thing after Purpose Driven Life. There are many others who have done the same thing. Tim Keller says this, we, we gauge what we should be giving largely by how we feel. If it does not feel costly at all, uh, we we probably have further to go. Also, if it's it's below what what God says is the starting point, it's most certainly we've got a, a, a distance to go. You know, for others, generosity isn't a problem for you. It comes naturally to you. But maybe it's something other than that. And and in our context, in our context that the New York Times would call a context where there's a lot of affluenza, a lot of wealth, and a lot of what you could call the money flu. Where where you just see a lot more distorted sexuality. Where there's a lot of money. It just happens. Ubiquity of porn even prostitutes and escort services and such. Did you know that Nashville, Tennessee, which up to just recently was called the buckle of the Bible belt? Church on every corner, right? Did you also know that Nashville, Tennessee is the city where there are more Sexaholics Anonymous meetings every single week than any other city in the world? Now that's good news in that people are getting help. It's concerning news in that there are that many people seeking help. 
Another life lie is that leisure will be your answer. Excessive self-care. I'm all for self-care. But there's also such thing as self-care. Where you get into this situation where you've inoculated yourself and distanced yourself from the needs of others so much that you don't have a single friend in which the friendship costs you something more than it costs them. You start dropping, you find yourself starting to drop names. You, 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 you recognize perhaps that the invitation list to your dinner parties is a lot different than it was before you started making a lot of cash. That's a warning sign. For instance, excessive leisure, excessive self-care, where we inoculate ourselves from caring for others, where charity starts at home, but it also ends there. And the other, you guessed it, partisan politics, you guys. Biggest idol in Nashville, Tennessee. If you want my opinion, biggest idol. If I experience deeper grief about what's happening in Washington, D.C., than I do about the decline and nominalism that exists in the American church, I have to ask myself, am I living a life lie? Jesus said you've got to lose your life. You've got to let it go. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves illicit sex will never be satisfied with it. He who loves excessive leisure and self-care will never be satisfied with it. He who loves partisan politics will never be satisfied with it. How far is Jesus asking us to go? Truly, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. And then he goes even deeper in Luke's version. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. What? We're supposed to love our enemies but hate our own father and mother and brothers and sisters? Again, hyperbole. Hyperbole. Bruno Mars is not going to jump in front of a train for somebody else. Jesus is not actually asking you to hate these people in your life. It's hyperbole. He's saying, here's what I want for you. I want your affection for me to so exceed your affection for anything or anyone else that it looks like hate in comparison But here's what happens when that happens. Husbands actually love their wives better when they love Jesus more than they love their wives. Wives actually love their husbands better when they love Jesus more than they love their husbands. Parents actually love and serve and tend to their children better when they love Jesus more than they love their children. Because Jesus calls us into this kind of radical love. When you love Jesus more than your career, people are going to love having you as a boss. You will treat your employees justly. You will pay them generously. You will not exploit them. Because Jesus doesn't allow it. 
And you will be a delight to those that you work for. Because Jesus calls all of his people to work with all of their hearts at whatever they do. Students, when you put Jesus before your own popularity, when you become more concerned about being kind than being liked, people will actually like you more. It's like C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So where is this headed? That's the last point. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive 100-fold and receive eternal life. We might ask, you know, if the rich ruler lets go of it all, what, what, what's in it for him? Here's what's in it for him. Greater riches than he's ever known. Because now he would be tethered to a king who owns everything, including everything he just gave up. Who loves him even when he doesn't love Jesus back. He walks away, it says, and and as he walks away sad, it says that Jesus looked at him and judged him. No, it doesn't say that. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. If he loves somebody who's walking away from him, how much do you think he loves somebody who stays with him and walks toward him? And how far does his love go? It goes all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane where the Father says to Jesus, I want you to give up all that you have. Oh, I know you're rich. You're richer than anybody's ever been rich. And I want you to give up all that you have for the sake of people who lack. And it says that Jesus, like the rich ruler, was sad. His soul was overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of grief. But instead of walking away, he walked toward 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich, Jesus became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. He is the only rich ruler, Jesus is, who could truly say, Lord, all of your commands I have kept ever since I was a child. He's the only one who's ever been able to say that and to say it true. In giving up his treasure, Jesus becomes our treasure. Let these words sink in. Lest you're tempted to cling to the life lie instead of holding it out to Christ with an open hand. Numbers 18.20, this is what he said to Aaron. He said, I am your share. I am your inheritance. May it be so for us as we approach this table... And as we prepare to put morsels and sips in our mouth that in fact are bigger than the universe if we will allow our imaginations to go there because that's where Jesus wants to take us. And so as we prepare for that, can I invite you to stand with me and we will talk about where our true comfort comes from.